Uh, as Jenny said, I am the worship pastor, and so naturally, everybody probably saw this uh, subject coming up from a mile away. It's inevitable that someday, whenever it was going to be talked about worship, for whatever reason, people would ask me to be the one to talk about it. Uh, laps in reasoning, if you will. Um, but I love talking about the subject, and, and one of the reasons why I love it is because it is so nuanced, and there's so many different uh, ways that people tend to approach the subject of worship. However, I think a lot of times when people do tend to talk about it and start to discuss um, what worship is to them or bring up opinions and suggestions on how worship should look or sound, a lot of times it's, it's rooted in, in, in bias, or ritual rather than in something that is spoken of in the scriptures. And if you're like me, and I probably listen to too many other people's opinions, uh, but you read and you hear people talk about, oh, how I, I don't know any of these new songs. They don't play enough hymns. The music is too loud. The music is too quiet. The lights are too bright. The lights are too dark. The worship leader's dressed funny. I hear that one a lot. I don't know. Um, no, but really, actually, uh, I am actually very, very grateful to be in such a gracious church where my, you know, my inbox isn't blowing up with things that I should have done better uh, the previous week. I will share this, though. I think in my first interview uh, for this position, Jenny told me at, at a later point that I was dressed just normally enough to make it to a second interview. Um, so I know that those biases are out there somewhere. <laughs> but really, we come in with a lot of these ideas on how worship is supposed to play out. And so we're constantly asking this question is, how should worship look? How should worship sound? But I think that that's kind of putting the the cart before the horse because um, I think the question we should be asking that almost determines the how question is, what is worship even about? More specifically, who is worship even about? And, And like Jenny said, you're stuck with me for two weeks. Hopefully you come back next Sunday. But Next week, we will get into the issue of how, and we're going to actually talk about some of the biblical language surrounding worship and how God conducted his people in worship uh, during biblical times, and that's things that we can apply to our lives today. But for us right now, I want to discuss that issue of what is worship about and who is worship about. Because a lot of times, when you hear opinions rise up, a lot of times it sounds a lot more like people's preferences and people's definitions of worship rather than God's. But, you know, and I've, I'm 26 years old now. I've been in worship teams for half my life. I know that's not a big number, but it's big to me. And I believe that God has revealed so much of himself through worship and has so many wonderful things in store that he would hate for us to miss and I would hate for us as a church to miss. And so today we're going to explore what God has to say about who and what worship is about And hopefully in doing so, in answering that question, we get to get a greater glimpse into who he is, who we are, and how a life of worship really looks in the lives of the believers. So to discover more of that, what God has to say, would you turn with me to chapter 4 in the book of John? Uh, If you do not have a Bible with you, feel free to use the ones on the table. If you do not own a Bible, uh, the one at the table is yours. You're You're welcome to take it home with you. Uh, If you have never been to the book of John, it looks like that one up there that the arrow's pointing to. So look for a book called John Without Any Numbers on it, and you're there. As you're turning over there, I'm going to set the scene a little bit. Uh, The book of John is one of the four Gospels uh, that begin the New Testament. It's one of the accounts of Jesus' life and his ministry on the earth. Uh, John, in particular, 
is probably the most intimate and personal one because it is filled with all these one-on-one conversations that Jesus has with people in which Jesus shares so much of his heart and the Father's heart with the ones he's talking to. And chapter 4 is no different. Just to set the stage again, uh, Jesus is traveling. We actually have a map here to show where we're at. Uh, Jesus is traveling from the southern region of Judea, which is where cities like Bethlehem and the capital of Jerusalem are. And he's traveling up north to this region called Galilee, which is where familiar cities like his hometown of Nazareth are, is. But here specifically in chapter 4, he's in that middle part called Samaria, more particularly in this city of Sychar, which is located at the mountain of Gerizim. And so Jesus and his disciples are traveling north through this region called Samaria, and Jesus has sent his disciples into town to restock on supplies, and he's chilling at a well, and that's where today's interaction is going to take place. And just to let you know, it's going to feel a bit weird going through this passage, and you may find yourself wondering, it's like, where, where does this connect to worship? I'll let you know it's going to happen, and it's going to be very intentional in the way that Jesus has this interaction and what he has to say and show about worship in this story. So read with me. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, actually, reads like this. says, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, before we move any further, I know we kind of set the scene, but I I really want to point out what's remarkable about this interaction, because the woman seems to think that it's remarkable as well. She's questioning why he would even speak to her. Let's bring the map up again, uh, just to get some context here. Again, so they're traveling from this region of Judea up to Galilee. Samaria's in the middle. But in that day and age, most Jewish people, most Israelites, would actually make this long trek around to avoid the region of Samaria entirely. They would rather make a round trip and take a hard, harder way than go through this area to interact with these people. And that's because in Israel's history, during one of their periods of exile, an enemy nation had forcibly removed them from their land and repopulated it with people who were not Israelites. So foreign people came into this region that became known as Samaria, and Israelite people were forced to start families with them and have children that were not fully Israelites. And even though they adopted some Israelite customs, they recognized some Israelite patriarchs, and even incorporated Israel's God into their worship and religion, the people of Israel still did not accept them. They considered them unclean and even called them half-breeds because they were not fully Jewish. Because they were a symbol of this period of exile, they were a reminder of Israel's failures and defeat, the people of Israel despised the people of Samaria. So they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And this woman points it out. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. What, What do you want with me? What could you possibly want to say to me? Why would you want to speak to me in the first place? So she's puzzled and probably indignant as well as just like, you people treat us like half-breed dirt and now you're asking me for a drink of water? Who do you think you are? Of course, Jesus was just getting the ball rolling as the conversation continues. Beginning in verse 10, let's carry on. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, I like that, the gift of God, 
And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you, I like this as well, living water. He would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, and highlight this, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So Jesus broke the ice by asking her for a drink, asking her to offer him something. But then he shifts gears from asking to saying, Hey, I have something if even better. And if you knew who it was you were talking to, and if you knew the gift of God, you'd ask me for it, and I'd give it to you. He's saying that if she knew that she was talking to the Son of God, if she knew that she was talking to the promised Savior and the Messiah, she would be the one approaching him, asking for what he has to give, and he would give it. And what Jesus has to give is exactly what he came to earth for, is to offer salvation and eternal life from the Father. And Jesus calls it, he uses this metaphor calling it living water. And that's kind of weird, you know, hippie language to us. But it meant something in the first century. Because uh, in, in the first century language, there were three different kinds of water. There was basically like bayou water that was dirty, infected. It's, it's kind of the wastewater. Then there was well water that you had to dig for. It is stagnant but cleaner and it's cool because it's underground but then there's this third kind of water called living water and we would call it today spring water it's purified ozarka it's fiji it's dasani it's all that good stuff because living water was the spring water it came from the rivers it was something that was constantly flowing and so it was constantly being cleaned and purified on its own it was a natural spring that was purest water it never ran dry and it was constantly being refreshed, being made new. And Jesus is comparing what he has to give, the life that is in Jesus, he's comparing this to living water, saying this is what the life in Christ that I come to give, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to make you clean. It's going to be purer than anything that you could dig or find for yourself. It is constantly flowing, welling up, to eternal life, so that you will never run out of it from me, so you'll never have to go and dig a different well again, and it's constantly being made new in you as you receive it. But this metaphor kind of flies over the woman's head because she's still thinking in terms of literal water when he talks about this. He's confused over what he's talking about and how he would even give it. He says, you don't have a bucket, you don't have a well. Are you better than the ancestor who dug this well for us? Are you better than this traditional way that we've always been doing things? And Jesus responds saying, yeah, I am. He's saying, if you dig from this well, you're going to be thirsty again tomorrow. You're going to have to dig more. You're going to have to pick up more water. And then when this well dries out, you're going to have to dig another well. You have to find another source. But in me, you will never thirst again. You will never have to look for another source of life. You will never have to find anything else because you will be satisfied and made full and whole in me. And the woman still doesn't really get it, but she gets enough to realize that she wants what he's got. 
And so she asked Jesus, hey, can you give me some of this water that you're talking about? And then the conversation takes another twist, and Jesus kind of starts to show his cards more to better reveal himself to her. Beginning in verse 16, says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you, are now, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. What a zinger from Jesus. And she responds saying, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Finally, someone's using the word worship in this story, right? So Jesus starts to let on that he knows more than she has told him. He knows things that he can't and maybe shouldn't. And this probably came as a start to this woman because this is stuff that she purposefully left out of her narrative. She just said, I don't have a husband. And that wasn't the whole truth. And I think a lot of times, if somebody was to bring this up to this woman, it would be to shame her, to be like, yeah, no, I know your whatever past you've had and where you're living right now. And it's used to put her down. It's, I, we didn't mention it earlier, but like it said in verse six, it's noontime. That's the heat of the day. And most people wouldn't go to the well when it's hottest. They get the errands done at the beginning of the day when it's in the cool of the morning. And here's this woman coming in midday by herself. It's very possible that not only is she as a Samaritan despised by Jewish people, as a woman despised by men, but also by this history that she's hiding and her present circumstances, it's probably likely that she's despised by her own community as well. So she's very ostracized and on her own, which is why she's very defensive when Jesus is trying to talk to her. But see, Jesus didn't say this to expose and shame her, but to show her more of who it was that she was talking to. He was saying, I know these things about you, and that says something about me and who it is that you're dealing with here. And she kind of catches on to this, and she believes that now she believes that she's talking to a prophet, somebody who receives messages and truths from God. And so, you know, she realizes that this man is highly intellectual and highly religious. What do all intellectual religious men want to do? He must want to debate. And so she comes in with this really good argument point, says, okay, you're a Jewish prophet. Riddle me this then. Our ancestors worship here on the mountain of Gerizim. Y'all say that you got to worship on the temple mount in Jerusalem. Who's right? Fight me on this. But Jesus isn't here to pick a fight. And instead of kind of taking the bait, Jesus starts to give her a glimpse, not of what Jewish people say about worship, or not even to tackle down what Samaritan people say about worship. Jesus says what God has to say about worship. And here's where it all comes to what we're discussing today. In verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father, highlight this, in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. So let's weigh anchor here, because there's a lot to unpack in these four verses what Jesus has just said. Jesus is saying, hey, you're thinking in terms of location. You're thinking geographically about what God is saying is not 
necessarily a physical thing. Physical contingencies are not God's concern when it comes to the subject of worship. Because he says God is, is not physical. He's not an object. God is spirit. And so true worship is an act of what he calls an act of the spirit and of truth. What does that mean? So it's one whole in two parts, spirit and truth here. And we're going to kind of address one at a time. The first part is that worship is, we worship in the spirit. And that sounds really abstract. Uh, That sounds very zen. I'm going to connect my chakras to the energy of the earth. And I'm going to just sort of focus on having, or maybe we think of it in terms of our mood of like, I'm going to be in good spirits. I'm going to, I'm going to, we got spirit. Yes, we do. You know, it's going (laughs) to, we think that it's that. We think it's being spirited and having uplifting spirits is what we need in order to worship God or we need to connect to some sort of positivity in our life in order to worship him pleasantly or be around positive people in an uplifting, boosted environment. But Jesus is saying it's not about these things because he doesn't say worship in spirit, worship in the spirit. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Worship is an act of the Holy Spirit that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish in our lives. And how do we receive the Holy Spirit into our life? By accepting life and salvation in Jesus. What Jesus is saying here, and we'll have it on the screen, is that the first thing you need to know about worship is that worship is God-given. Worship is God-given. Now, a lot of people hear that, and they kind of think it, it I hear this a lot um, from, from people who, who really wrestle with the idea of God and of a God that we ought to worship, is that we think of God as some kind of egotist, that he's so insecure that he needs millions of people around the earth to recite a script of how great he is back to himself. And so I don't want us to see worship as God-given as in God giving us the script. Worship is God-given because God gives us every reason that we need to worship. Because he has given us life itself. Jesus came with a mission to save, seek out the lost, and offer eternal life through his sacrifice on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying here is that when you partake of this living water, when you receive this eternal life that I've come to offer, the Spirit of God rests within you and will continue to renew this life within you, continue to remind you of how deeply you are loved by God, how far He has sought after you, and how long He has been faithful and good to you. And that should be something that amazes us. It should be something that shakes us out of a compartmentalized way of thinking because I think that's a temptation a lot is that we, we assign the word worship to a worship song that's sung in a worship service that is led by a worship band. But Jesus is saying, look, the Spirit of God will go with you. You're going to be saved all your days. So you don't have to wait till Sunday to worship me because my goodness is with you Monday through Saturday all the same. My mercy is new every single morning. That should astound us. That should shake us to our core and awaken a desire and a compulsion of our hearts to express how meaningful that is to us. This series is called Delighting in God, and I think a lot of times we, we think of the word delighting like, oh, I should be delighted. This should be something that's delightful, like a birthday party or something like that. But to delight in God means that we treasure God. We cherish God everything that he has done and we adore him for everything that he is so our expression of worship he's saying 
Our expression of worship ought to be a reflection of the impression that God has made upon our hearts and our minds. That the songs that we sing aren't just so that we can recite what's on a screen, you know? It's so that we can truly reflect on the realities that we have been loved by an eternal, everlasting, all-powerful God. That he has sought us out and given us life and given us his spirit so that we can know truly who it is that we have been saved by. This is um, often presented, this idea, in the book of Psalms, which is literally just 150 chapters of worship music. And King David in Psalm 51 talks about the presence of God, talks about the Spirit of God, saying, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me and don't cast me away from your presence, but renew within me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit so that I can praise your name. You know, I'll tell you, like I said, I've been doing worship stuff and in worship teams for about 13 years now. And I have to say, the most astounding, heart-turning, transformative times of worship have not been on big stages in front of hundreds or thousands of people. I don't think I've ever led in front of thousands of people, so definitely not that. But it hasn't been in large, multi-million dollar rooms where the lights and the sound were perfect and there were 20 people on stage and everything went off without a hitch. Some of the most significant and meaningful times of worship were times like before this church even launched and we met in a small little classroom off in the hallway with our launch team. And it was less than 20 people in that room and we had an acoustic guitar, a box, and a projector. But it was magnificent because we were all here connected and amazed by what God has done. That he would call us to himself to become this church body, to seek him and delight in all that he is. It's been in times where the power has gone out and the breakers kind of flipped and the sound system shuts off. And so you can't hear anything through the microphones or through the sound systems and the speakers, but people keep on singing because it's not about how well we're playing guitar on stage or whether or not I'm cracking my voice trying to hit the notes. It's about who we are singing to. It's about the reality of our God. And that is something that is so transcendent of any physical location, any song selection, any little other thing. The presence of God is with us, and the Spirit of God has been given to us to remind us of salvation and life in Him. That's why we sing the song, Holy Spirit. He's saying, let us become more aware of your presence and experience the glory of your goodness. Let us realize that there's nothing worth more. Nothing is more worthy of our worship than our God, because He's here with us right now. So our desire ought to be the same, that joy and salvation would be constantly renewed within us, that life in God would constantly be marked by how much we treasure all that he has done. And so our expressions, whether it be song or work or interactions with other people in our daily lives, are all just reflections and responses to what our God has done for us. To give a a little perspective on this, um, I've had a great privilege to work with different student ministries around the city of Houston. Uh, And one in particular was a middle school band that I got to play with. And I love leading and worshiping with young people because there's such a sense of awe and wonder about them still. And one student, we'll call her Abby, um, approached me one Wednesday night and said, hey, Caleb, can I tell you something that God taught me this week? And I mean, you can't say no. Um, 
they know me there. Uh, and so she says, I, so Abby runs track, but she's also an asthmatic. And so she says one time she was running track, at the end of it she had a very bad asthma attack, and uh, she didn't have the medicine that she needed. It lasted a lot longer than usual, and she said it was a really scary time. And so one of her friends came up to her the next day at school and said, what, what's it like to have asthma? Like, what do you feel in those times? And she says, it's so scary to me that I can't even control something as fundamental and basic as breathing, that I don't even have enough power to put air in my own lungs. And she says that her, her, her friend said, was like, well, yeah, you never do. You never have control over that. And we were singing this song called Great Are You, Lord, uh, that Wednesday night. And she says that that song came to mind for her because the chorus to that song goes, it's your breath, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. And she was suddenly astounded by this reality that it's not just because of a physical condition that she can't control her breathing. The reality is that's just a reminder to her that every breath comes from the Lord. Life itself, something so basic and taken for granted, all these involuntary systems in our lives that keep us moving are gifts from God. And so every breath and every moment is something to be cherished and remind us of what a gift that is and how amazing our God is that he would give that to us. Uh, Pastor in, in Georgia, Louis Giglio, puts it this way. He says that worship is giving God's breath back to him. It's what he has offered to us. We use it to breathe out praises and boast in our God and let him know how meaningful he is to us. And just as much as worship is an act of the Spirit, it is also an act of truth. What does this mean? Well, just a personal example and testimony. Uh, I am very guilty a lot of times of trying to worship in something other than truth. Because a lot of times when I come in here or when we come in here throughout our lives, we can be guilty of trying to worship based on where we stand or who we are or what we can do or the things that we like. The problem is, is that um, I'm a very inconsistent person and I do not have that much power in my life to make sure that everything here is fine-tuned to the way that I like it. There's going to be electrical shortages. My voice is going to give out. You know, things are going to happen. And so I can get frustrated sometimes because I feel like I have to uphold some certain expectation that I have to produce something and bring something to the table so that God will approve of my expression of worship. But the problem is because life itself is shaky and I'm inconsistent and I cannot produce truth on my own that my worship can't be based on my performance or how I would like things to go. But scripture knows this. The Bible says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And Jesus says, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the reality of it is, is that worship, just like it is something that is God-given, worship is founded on God's heart, not on our preference. Worship is founded on, our, on God's heart, not on our preference. And when I say preference, I don't just mean like taste in music or the ambiance in the room. I mean how we would prefer our world to go, how we would prefer our way to spend. And I would attach this to this, I, to this, um, this thing that we probably say or think a lot of times. It's this, it's this line that can mean so many things to so many people saying, 
I just wasn't really feeling worship today. You know, I wasn't feeling worship. It's funny, I've read, a, I've read a lot of spiritual pundits that talk about it. That's not a bad word, right? Um, a lot of people who write and publish opinion pieces and hot takes on worship and church services, and they complain about the song selection, they complain about the way that the band looks or how many guitar solos they got in there, and they admit at the end of it, it's like, I just wasn't feeling worship, so I sat down and I started tweeting. And so that's one way of saying I wasn't feeling worship. And to me, it's kind of like, that's not anyone else's fault for that. But the other way, and I think this is something that we can honestly relate to a lot more, um, is when I'm just not feeling worshipful. I don't feel like I'm in the state that I should be in in order to approach an almighty God. You know, this has been a rough week. This has been a rough year. Uh, sometimes for me, it's been a rough morning on Sundays, getting up here and getting on stage. And I'm not in the mood that I know I should be. I don't, I'm not in a mood that reflects someone who's super thankful and super glad for everything that God has done. But God knows that which is why worship isn't based on us. Worship isn't based on how we feel or how we can perform for him. It's based on the truth of God, something so transcendent of all the twists and turns that life itself can take. Brooke Westcott, he's a, a theologian who wrote a lot of commentaries on the Gospel of John, uh, put it this way, he says, a true idea of God is essential to a right service of him. And that's recognizing that we need to realize that our worship is based on who, we realize, on who we think our God is. Is our God someone who is greater than anything that's happened to us? Greater than our faults and our failures or how I might feel like I come up short or feel disqualified? Because if he is, then I can still come here and worship and seek after him, trusting that he is who he says he is. And that his work is finished and his life, as Jesus described it, this living water is constantly new, constantly refreshed, and is never going to be exhausted in me. And that's going to be my fuel for worship. Not when I feel empty on what I can offer. Another one of the Psalms puts it this way. Psalm 86, verse 11. It's on the screen. You don't have to turn there. It says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. What that is saying is that our faith itself is an act of worship. When we place our trust in God on the daily, when we come in here and we sing songs and say, God, I don't feel this song saying we will not be moved when the earth gives way. I'm feeling really shaken. But if we take that feeling and we turn to him with it and say, God, would you be my foundation? Would you help me to stand firm on your truth and who you say you are so that I can celebrate that the risen one has overcome, that he shall reign forever, and I stand firm in the life that he gives. So to worship God, we turn our gaze up to him and depend on him to be faithful and true just like he has always been. So when we're not feeling worship because we feel disqualified or we feel like we can't approach the throne room of God, remember that's a throne of grace. Remember that's a God of mercy who knows your past, who knows where you're standing right now, and is still seeking you out, just like Jesus sought out this Samaritan woman, sought out this perfect stranger, sought out somebody with a sordid history, and still offered her life through him. He does the same for us. And so scripture says when we truly reflect on that, when we embrace 
the spirit of God and the life that he brings and we found ourselves in the truth of God and rely on who he is more than what we can do, then the outpouring of our heart in seeking him and treasuring him above these other things, that is worship. And that is something that is greater than a song. It's greater than a Sunday morning. It's something that we can come together and share with each other and reiterate to ourselves and remind one another of the truth of who God is and know that we have all things in common as his church because we share the spirit of God and the life that he brings. And with no added conditions and no expectations and nothing of ourself that disqualifies us, we can worship our God every day of our lives out of our own hearts because to worship in the spirit and the truth means that we embrace salvation and life in Jesus We place our trust in God and we delight in him for all of his perfections. So Jesus' conversation uh, with this woman ends with her admitting to him, you know, I've been waiting for this Messiah. I know that a savior is coming, that God has promised somebody who's gonna come and set things straight and make sense of all this to me. So I'm waiting on him and Jesus says, hey, I'm him, I'm the Messiah. And immediately it says that she runs back to the city finds as many people as she can and says, come and meet this guy who knows so much about me and knows so much about God. And she brings them back so that they can be close to Jesus, the one who is showing them more of God's heart. If you hadn't noticed, Jesus never once mentioned what songs they should sing, whether they should sing Samaritan songs or Jewish songs. He doesn't care about locations. He doesn't talk about how bright the light should be in their place of worship. He doesn't talk about whether harp or guitar solos or skinny jeans are satanic or not. He's talking about the spirit of God. He's talking about showing her more of who God is because that's the foundation of worship. Jesus doesn't come in swinging on our life and trying to exist to prove us wrong. He comes to offer a gift. He comes to offer us life in him and offer this tool called worship in which we can engage with the spirit of God and the truth of who he is that we can be reminded of all these wonderful reasons that we have to love our God because he has so richly loved us. And Jesus, even as he's verbalizing this to the woman, he's also setting an example of what it looks like. Because the son of God, Jesus, is going to this oft-forsaken city, talking to this outcast woman. And instead of judging her, he says, hey, I know you. Come and know me and come and know the life that I, have brought, that I bring to you. Likewise, God has decided to come into our context that Jesus would take on flesh and dwell among us and show us how he knows us more deeply than we would ever admit to him. But he doesn't despise us for it. It has been his delight to show us his steadfast love from the beginning so that we can know him more, know more of his heart and be attached to the life that God brings. Jesus didn't decide to bypass around us, but he decided to give us his presence so that we can know his goodness. And in response to everything that God provides, we show him worship by saying, thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you, God, for saving me. I love you back. That's our expression of worship, is that it is a response of telling God that we love him back. Nowadays, it it can be all too easy for us to let differing opinions from ourselves or from other people dictate the way that we engage in God, dictate how our relationship with God is meant to look. But worship is something that is so much greater 
than anything we can invent or anything that we can recommend to one another. It's about who our God is. Because the greatest part of worshiping God is God himself. He's the one that it's all about. He's the one that it's for because he's the one that it comes from. And nothing on this earth can overpower or undo his finished work. That through Jesus, he has made himself knowable. And we get to know him deeper, deeper and love him more. Through the way that we express and remind ourselves and celebrate together the truth and reality of who our God is. So these songs that we sing are just a reflection, just a reminder to us and a response to God's constant expressions of goodness and love towards us meant to affirm our trust in him so that we can reciprocate this relationship that he has initiated. Because just like our lives are supplied and founded on God, our worship is inseparably attached to his heart. So if we feel far from it, if we don't feel worship, we ask for more of God's heart. Say, God, show me more of you. Let me know who you are so that I can delight in that and treasure that and be so much more grateful and celebrate the reality that he has treasured us as well. You know, like I said, tonight we're going to be having a, a worship night. We're going to be engaging with God as a church once again in worship and prayer and, and seeking God for the future of many students and families and educators and also just as, as a church coming and being reminded and being affirmed in the spirit of God and his presence with us and the truth of who he is. And I hope that you will come and engage in that with us. And I hope that it is a time that encourages us and ultimately turns us more towards God and shows us more of who our savior is so that we can delight in him more and we can seek his face more wholeheartedly because he has made himself known to us. And when we see him for who he is and we receive the life that is in his hands, We get to delight and treasure in that all the more. And we get to enjoy this beautiful relationship through this tool called worship. This means of knowing God more. This means of delighting in God more. One of my favorite um, songs, and I don't really remember how it goes. It was a long time ago when I heard it. But it has these beautiful lines that says, uh, Worship starts with seeing you, and our hearts respond to your revelation. It says, No one can sing of things that they have not seen So God, would you open our eyes towards a greater glimpse? It's a desire, God, for me to worship you more, for me to delight in you more, for me to make this about you. Would you help me to see you? And so that's that's the attitude, that's the mindset, that's the expression that we should have, no matter our mood, whether we are celebrating and we are glad to be here or we have just barely scraped by and, and we're not really sure what to say to him. Ask to see him. Ask to know him more. Ask for God to show you more of who he is so that he can be the giver and the fuel of your worship just as he has been the giver of life from the beginning. So we engage with worship with him as a church. It is my desire that Real Hope Community Church would be a church that worships in the spirit and in truth because in that we get a fuller glimpse of who our God is and who we are meant to be in him. And our life will not be something that is so routine or compartmentalized, but it's something that is enriched by the Spirit of God in every good and perfect thing that comes from the eternal life that we can know through Jesus.